Hey, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of The Great Divide, what I believe is the first and only big country podcast in the world. I don't know if it is or not. I'm not totally sure, but I know that I have not seen or heard another one. So I'm just going to claim that title for my own until proven otherwise. So if there are any other big country podcasts out there, please feel free to let me know, and I will rescind that comment immediately. So anyway, my name is Tom Kirchival. You might know me as Dis on the Big Country message boards. Um, If you've been a regular there for many years, you probably know my name there as Dis. And if you ever wondered where that came from, when I first got on the internet, my email address was Dissident. Um, I think it was Dissident at Mindspring. And the reason it was Dissident is because I was in a band at the time called The Dissidents. And uh, I just used that for my email address. And I don't know who it was, can't remember, but somebody just started calling me Dis for short. It kind of it kind of stuck, and it was a, a nickname, and I I liked it, so I kept it. In fact, I uh, as I mentioned, I am a musician too. I do my own music and release it independently. Um, you might have heard some of the big country covers that I've done. I've done a lot of those. But I've often released that music under the name Dis, and I did that for a few years. But i got to be honest, I felt kind of stupid calling myself Dis. I, I realized that I'm just not the kind of person who can call himself by one name. I mean, you know, The Edge seems like a really humble guy, and he seems like a cool guy. I like him a lot, but I don't know how he goes around calling himself The Edge. I just I felt like an idiot calling myself Dis in real life. On the internet, it was great. It was a great little nickname, but... In real life, I felt stupid, so if you see further music from me, it'll be under my real name, Tom Kerchival, and and that's how I'm going to refer to myself here, but hey, I still like the nickname, so if you want to call me Dis, please feel free, and um, speaking of contacting me, I've got a new Gmail account for this podcast, and if you want to get in touch with me and let me know what you think about it, please do, and that address is bigcountrypodcast, all one word, bigcountrypodcast, at gmail.com. Now, th- this is strictly amateur hour, okay? So don't expect any kind of uh, amazing broadcasting prowess or, or technological achievements here. I am not a professional broadcaster. I am a musician, which so I have the equipment here to do this, and uh, that's why I'm doing it. But really, I'm just doing it for fun and, and in the hopes that some people will enjoy it, and a lot of big country fans will enjoy it. And basically what this is, if you're not familiar with podcasts or you know not familiar with musical-related podcasts, this is basically going to be what most podcasts centered around um, bands and music and I guess really any topic, what most podcasts are. And that is just some nerd uh, on a particular subject talking about the thing that he or she is nerding out over. And I'm a big country nerd. I have been for many years, since the early 80s, mid-80s, and um, I know a lot about the band because I followed them religiously for so long, and still do, and I just enjoy talking about them, and I enjoy sharing ideas and opinions about them, and I thought something like this was needed. One of the reasons I came to that conclusion is uh, over the past few years, I've really been getting into podcasts a lot, just listening to them. And probably one that I've listened to the most is centered around the band Kiss. Okay, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Maybe some of you think I should be. But uh, Kiss was my favorite band when I was a kid. When I was a little kid, they were the first band that really just grabbed me. Um, actually, that's not totally true. I was really into the Jackson 5 even before Kiss. And even a little bit into the Carpenters before that. In fact, the very first album I owned was a Carpenters album. Back to Kiss. Um I discovered a podcast or podcast about Kiss, <laughs> and it's funny I just said podcast because that's the name of the podcast I'm talking about. It's called the Podcast. So if I ever slip and call this a podcast, you'll know why. Anyway, I really enjoyed it, and it's just a couple of guys, you know, talking about every obscure aspect of the band that only a complete Kiss nerd like myself would appreciate and understand. But anyway, listening to this podcast and enjoying it as much as I have over the years, I just began to think, you know, 
there why isn't there a podcast about big country? I mean, this would be a great venue for big country or for a big country fan, a big country fan slash nerd like myself. And, uh, you know, hopefully it would it would be something of interest to people, just something talking about, you know, the band from every possible aspect that only the most devoted fan or hardcore or diehard fan or whatever you want to call them could appreciate. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to take a stab at this and see how it goes. I've enjoyed listening to other podcasts. I'm going to create one for my favorite band of all time and um, and see if people like it. So what to expect from this? Well, this first episode, basically just expect me blabbing and um, also playing some clips. Uh, and what we're going to be doing today is, uh, after talking a little bit about the his- early history of the band, I want to go through The Crossing track by track and give my thoughts on each track. I recently received uh, the Crossing remaster, which I've got to say is an amazing piece of work, and kudos to anyone who was involved in the production of that. I just love it. I mean, the uh, the packaging is great. I love the green and gold colors. The track listing is great. The music sounds great. And that's what I'm going to be going through. Now, I'm, I'm just going to be talking mainly about the main tracks on The Crossing, not necessarily the B-sides or the uh, or the extra tracks that are on this remastered version because, you know, that could take multiple podcasts. And I will get to those at some point. But today I just want to be want to be talking about the crossing, the main meat of the crossing as we heard it in 1983, track by track, and give kind of my opinions on it, and and talking about some other aspects of the band too. So there's going to be a lot of me in this one, but I want to let you guys know that I would love to get more people involved in this. If this sounds like something, um, you know, that people like, if this is something that people enjoy listening to and like, I would love to get other people involved. So I hope to have some guests on this show at some point, um, whether they're just you know, diehard fans like me, or maybe even down the road, some people associated with the band would be great. So we'll see how this develops. But for for this first one, um, it's basically just going to be me and my opinions. And I apologize if that sounds narcissistic. I don't mean it to, but hey, it's just me. So what else can I do? Okay, so the, the first place to start, I think, for me is um, just to tell you a little bit about how I discovered Big Country and how I got into Big Country. And my story probably won't be completely dissimilar to a lot of stories out there. Uh, I know we all have discovered big country at different periods. Probably my, the height of my big country love was definitely when Steeltown came out. But I, I certainly discovered them and became aware of them when The Crossing came out. I bought The Crossing. I loved The Crossing. But it wasn't, in still, it wasn't until Steeltown came out that I became a fanatic about the band. But that'll be for another podcast. But... Today, um, I guess the best place to start would be when I was a kid in 1983, and I was a young teenager, so I'm dating myself a little bit, but uh, I was a young teenager, but I was a teenager in 1983, and I'll never forget the day I was sitting on my couch in my room, or actually it was in uh, the living room of my, my parents' home, I guess nobody was home at the time, and I was listening to a radio station that I really loved at the time, it was called 107X. And if any of you are from the Maryland area, maybe you remember that, because that's where I lived at the time in Maryland, um, United States, of course, as you probably have gathered by now. And it was a great radio station that played all kinds of stuff. It it played stuff from heavy metal to progressive stuff to alternative stuff that was coming out at the time. And as I mentioned, I was a big Kiss fan when I was a kid. And, And at this point in my life, Pretty much that was the only form of music that I listened to. I mean, hard rock, heavy metal stuff, Kiss, Judas Priest, that kind of thing. That's what I wanted to hear, and uh, that's all I listened to. And I'll never forget this day that I was listening to the radio station, and this riff that I'm about to play for you came on the radio, and I was kind of half listening at the time. I think I was just laying on the couch, just chilling out, and... This riff came on, and it's not an exaggeration to say that it changed my life. It uh, it just did something to me and connected with me in a way that changed the way I viewed music. And this is the riff that I heard.
Okay, I bet you thought you were going to hear the opening strains of In a Big Country there, right? Um, I tricked you, but actually it was U2. U2, 11 o'clock TikTok, live at Red Rocks. I heard that song, and I heard that guitar part, and it really it really had nothing to do with Bono. Um, it was the Edge's guitar sound. I'd never heard anything like that before. And to be quite honest, I didn't even know if I liked it. It was strange. It was just like, it was such a foreign sound to me. I wasn't sure how to take it, but I knew that I couldn't get it out of my head. And it was something that, um, when I first heard it, the the radio disc jockey did not say who it was. So I was really upset because I was like, who is this? Who is this band? I've, I've got to hear more of this band. He didn't say who it was, and I kept listening to the radio station uh, to hear the song again. And thankfully, they played that song a lot uh, back in, in that time period. So I found out it was U2, and I don't know if you've ever seen the movie AI, Artificial Intelligence, by Steven Spielberg. It's one of my favorite movies, actually. But um, in in the movie, there's a young, well, there's a robot boy, and he is made to give to parents who want a child, and this is, of of course, a futuristic type thing, but the boy is a robot, but if you say a certain uh, sequence of words... It'll initiate something in this robot's programming that will allow him to love the person who has said this or said this sequence of words to him, or at least to make it seem like he can display love or whatever. And I kind of felt almost like that in a sense. I felt like I was I had this programming somehow inside of me to like this kind of music, but it took that riff from an eleven o'clock TikTok to make the programming uh, come to life, and it it. It woke something up in, inside of me, like I was some sort of sleeper agent or something. It was just the, the strangest feeling. And so, um, Loving You Too early on really opened my eyes to bands like Big Country. And it's funny because I think I had heard In a Big Country before this happened, and I've been trying to think about the timeline. It's a little, little hazy for me now, but I, I do know that I heard In a Big Country first. That was the first Big Country song I heard, which is probably you know the way it was for almost all Americans who listen to the band um in fact you know that's unfortunately in america that's predominantly what the band is known for these days uh and and has always been known for you know a one-hit wonder who put out in a big country and people still love that song but unfortunately they, they're missing so much of the rich history of the band after that but for some reason that song did not connect with me as a young kid and i don't know what it was but it wasn't until i heard the song Fields of Fire and saw the video Fields of Fire that I became a big country fanatic as well. And I saw that video on a show called Friday Night Videos, and that was a very popular show here in America in the 80s and maybe into the 90s, I'm not sure. But, you know, when MTV first came out here, it was something that uh, most people didn't have initially. You, You pretty much only had it if you had cable television. And... We were probably the last family in our neighborhood to get cable television. We just had the antenna up on our roof, and whatever channels we could get, great. And my dad was not going to buy cable television. It took a long time before he finally relented and got it. But a lot of my friends at the time had MTV, and I used to watch MTV at their house and think, oh, man, if I had MTV, I would watch this channel all day long. It's the greatest thing ever. But for us who didn't have uh MTV. There was a show called Friday Night Videos. It was on NBC late on Friday night, obviously. And I think it was on at like either midnight or 1230, possibly 1130, but I, I think it was even later than that. But what I used to do is uh, go to bed Friday night and just kind of lay there. And when the time came closer for Friday Night Videos to come on and my family was asleep, I would sneak downstairs and uh, I would I would go to the TV, I would keep it low, and I would watch Friday night videos. And I would often see Kiss videos and, you know, whatever the new metal stuff was at the time. But one night I went down there and I saw the video for Fields of Fire.
tonight on Friday Night Videos. Jonathan Kane and Neil Schoen present brand new videos from the Rolling Stones and Big Country. The first runoff between your two four-time video vote winners as ZZ Top challenges the police with a free Journey t-shirt given away every 15 seconds during the voting. A private reel on Journey, plus Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson, Genesis, Huey Lewis and the News, The Motel, Eurythmics, Loverboy, and Brian Adams. And that was the song that did it for me. There was something about the combination of the visuals of that video and the music that just uh, that just blew me over. And it, it won me over, is the better way to put it. And made me a big country fan. And I, I, just, I still love that video today. I mean, it's one of, the, one of their best videos, I think. I love the World War I setting and them going back and forth between the little boy who's playing with his soldiers to having whatever uh, scenarios this little boy is creating coming to life with the guys in the band on a World War I battlefield. And just that music was so stirring and the, the imagery was so stirring to me. Maybe because when I was a, a young boy, I played a lot with soldiers like that kid in the video. And so there probably were some feelings of nostalgia that it woke up in me at the time too. Um, but that was the song that did it for me, the bagpipe sound of the guitars. And yes, I did say bagpipe. I'm sorry. I know a lot of people don't like that. I know a lot, a lot of people associated with the band don't like that. But uh, but let's face it. I mean, the guitars sounded like bagpipes, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think there's anything that should be embarrassing about that. And it wasn't like uh, they had a bagpipe effect pedal, or you know, <laughs> um, I think Bruce has joked about that in the past. Uh, it was the way they played. It was just the notes that they played. It was the droning strings that they played on the guitar. And as a guitar player, when I started playing guitar and started to figure out some of their songs, that really became more clear to me than ever. I mean, sure, they used things like reverb and the chorus effects and delay and, and all that stuff, but it was really the melodies of what they played that made the guitar sound like bagpipes and the drones. And uh, to me, it was genius, and it is genius, and it's magical, and it was magical to me at the time. So anyway, that's what first got me into Big Country. And I was into U2 definitely more at the time, but I went out and bought The Crossing, really loved it. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, The Crossing track by track. And uh, I, I guess before I get into that, let, let's look a little bit about, look a little bit at 1983. I mean, from a musical perspective. I'm looking on the Wikipedia site right now for uh, some of the, the musical uh, things of note that happened in 1983. And um, what a great time for, for music if you were really into alternative type of music and the kind of music that would be coming out. I mean, you know, U2 was, was hitting their zenith at that point, hitting their stride anyway. Big Country was starting in America. The Alarm was, was big. Um, you had so much great stuff. And a lot of crap, too, admittedly. But, uh, but let's look at some of these things. Um, Michael Jackson's Thriller album hit number one on the U.S. charts. And it says it was the first of 37 weeks it would spend there. That's pretty amazing. Um, U2 releases War in February. Dave Mustaine is fired from Metallica. Wow, I didn't realize that Metallica was around that long ago. Um, and hey, look at this. I just saw this. July 29th, Friday Night Videos is broadcast for the first time on NBC. Amazing. So, yeah, that, that coincides with, with uh, my memory. So that's good. Um the second Us Festival was held. Uh, Johnny Ramone suffers a near-fatal head injury during a fight over a girl in front of his East Village apartment. Never heard that story before. Paul Simon marries actress Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia, a marriage that would not end well. Um, the Rolling Stones sign a $28 million contract with CBS, the largest recording contract in history at that time. Um, oh, and here's an interesting one. Joe Strummer and Paul Simonon of The Clash issue a press statement announcing that Mick Jones has been fired from the group. And, of course, we know what came of that, a really terrible Clash album that's best left forgotten. Oh, and here's something I'd never heard of before. Uh, during a Def Leppard concert in Arizona, Joe Elliott refers to the previous night's venue, El Paso, Texas, as that place with all the greasy Mexicans. Wow, never heard of that before. It said, as word of the remark gets out, 
The band faces boycotts from various radio stations and Mexican-American community leaders. Uh, it says later that he apologized for this. So uh, obviously it didn't do their career much harm. They, um, <laughs> they came back with a vengeance. Quiet Riot's Metal Health topped the U.S. album charts. It was the first heavy metal album to hit number one in America. And who was on Dick Clark's Rockin' New Year's Eve special at the time? That, if you're not from America, that, is a, that was a uh, show run by the now past, unfortunately, Dick Clark every year. And when, uh, on December 31st, 1983, the guests on that show were Culture Club, Rick James, Laura Branigan, Barry Manilow, the Mary Jane Girls, and David Frizzell, who I have never even heard of. So you can see what I mean by there was also quite a bit of crap in 1983. I can't imagine a uh, a TV lineup that I would less want to watch than The Culture Club, Rick James, Laura Branigan, and Barry Manilow. Um, wow. So I think for a lot of us who were young at the time, bands like Big Country and U2 were, were among the first bands that really, I know it was for me, that really woke me up to the idea that music could be about so much more than these other things that I was listening to. And, and music hadn't made me think like that before. Music hadn't um, opened up those types of possibilities to me before as to what it could do and how it could make someone feel. And bands like Big Country and U2 were the first bands for me that really made me understand that. So I want to talk about The Crossing and The, the Crossing album, but obviously. But before I do, let's talk a little bit about the earlier days of Big Country. I mean, Stuart Adamson leaves The Skids, fantastic band, but a band that really was not that popular outside of the UK. Um, and even there, you know, they weren't, they certainly weren't a huge band. They were well known. They were they were putting out great music. Um, their albums were getting better with each successive album. They were growing. They were maturing, and they were so young too, which which blows my mind when I think about it. I mean, I think Richard Jobson was like twenty one or certainly in his early twenties when the band broke up, and they had already re- released you know multiple great albums at that time. Um, I believe the last album they released before Joy came out, which was the one they did without Stewart was the absolute game and uh what a fantastic just incredible album that is and man a lot of those songs i almost wish would have been done by big country in some respects you know woman in winter i'm thinking of and songs like that would have been great big country songs but they're great skid songs so you know they're still great and they're still great there to listen to but the skids didn't quite make it i mean stewart and uh and richard were were not getting along i know stewart was um you know seemed to be much more of a salt of the earth type of guy who was not that happy being in the spotlight not that comfortable being in the spotlight whereas Richard Jobson seemed like someone at least at the time who embraced that and uh you know very much was taken by that kind of thing i know he was getting into more abstract things and getting into poetry and um for, for better or worse uh and I guess they, they just didn't see eye to eye anymore, and the skids ceased to be. They went on to do the album Joy without Stuart. I think he played on one track, which um, I believe he might have played on Iona, I'm not sure, on that album, which ironically is probably the best song on the album. I'm not a fan of that album. I've tried to get into it. I know there are a lot of people who who love it and and say it's great. I just can't get into that album. I just, uh, it's just, it just doesn't do it for me. I respect what they're trying to do as far as the, the Scottish folk music and the elements that they're, uh, they're going for there, but it just seems like a lot of pomp to me. Whereas what Big Country was doing seemed anything but. But anyway, so the skids go on to try to continue without Stewart. I think it became pretty obvious after that album that without taking anything away from the other guys in the skids, especially Jobson, who obviously was was a, a great lyricist and and was a great part of making the Skids as you know great as a band as they were, but without Stewart, that band just was not going to make it at all. I mean, Stewart was the heart and soul of that band. I think you you'd have to agree that sound that he created was so unique and so special. And without it, the Skids were not the Skids. 
so they would quickly disband after the Joy album's failure, and Richard Jobson would go on to form the Armory Show, which I think was a really good band and did some great stuff. But um, Stuart would go and try to create the band that could perform the music that he heard in his head. And I really believe that he, and from reading interviews that I've read with him in the past, he had this sound in his head that he wanted to see materialize. So he met up with Bruce Watson, and they had known each other before. He got together with Bruce. They began to demo on a four-track a lot of the songs that would come, that would become big country classics. And uh, Angle Park was one of them, which which we have heard on the Crossing Remaster, which is very interesting, and uh, a number of others. And I, I guess, um, you know, Bruce being another guitar player as well, they also began to develop this great twin guitar sound. And the, the dual guitars has been done before in rock and roll, obviously, and had been done before at the time, but uh, never really like that. So obviously, uh, Stuart and Bruce needed a band to back up what they were doing. And they went out and got Clive Parker to play drums. And they got uh, two guys called Alan Wishart and Peter Wishart, two brothers. Um, Alan played bass, Peter played keyboards. And they formed the first version of Big Country. Now, I don't know about you, but I never knew that such, a, uh, such an animal existed until a couple years into my uh, fandom of Big Country. I think it wasn't until I got the book A Certain Chemistry that I realized that there had ever been another version of the band. And from the second I heard that there had been, it was something that I always wanted to hear. I was really fascinated by what that first version of the band might have sounded like. And I know I had read that they were criticized for their rhythm section at the time, which is one of the reasons that uh, you know Stuart and Bruce dropped the rhythm section and ended up getting uh, Bruce and Mark, or excuse me, Mark and Tony. Um, But I'd never heard them, and I really wanted to hear, you know, what that sounded like. You guys probably felt the same way. And it wasn't until recently that I got the chance to do just that, and that is because Clive Parker, the drummer for the band, if you're not familiar with this, he recently put up on a YouTube page, on his YouTube page, just some fantastic uh, stuff from that early period of Big Country. He's got a lot of demos that the band did. He's got, um, what's most amazing is the very first performance the band ever ever had at the Glen Pavilion in Dunfermline, Scotland. And it's the entire performance. The The quality is not the greatest, but it's, it's good enough to hear what's going on and to get a feel for the songs. And um, if you haven't heard it, I, I highly suggest that you do. Just go to YouTube and... Um, I'm not going to give out the exact web address because it's you know it's full of numbers and and random letters. So just go to YouTube if you haven't heard this. Type in uh, "big country demos" or uh, "big country first show," anything like that, and you'll find it. You'll find it very quickly. And um, it's really a fascinating thing to listen to. In fact, I want to play a little bit of it here for you. Um, Let me play just a little bit of the first song from the very first Big Country performance. This song is called Echoes, and uh, when we come off of this, I'll talk a little bit about what I think about that version of the band from what I've heard and, uh, you know, why they they probably weren't going to make it and why a change was needed. But anyway, here is the first version of Big Country playing their very first live show, and here is the very first song they played at that show. This is called, this is called Echoes, 1982, Big Country. Thank you. 
Okay, so that's Echoes by uh, the first version of Big Country, Big Country Mach 1, at their very first uh, show, their very first live show at the Dunfermline, at Dun, in Dunfermline at the Glen Pavilion. And um, really cool song, I think, first of all. I know there's a studio version of that, a demo that I've heard that's um, you know also very cool. That song kind of reminds me a lot of Balcony. But anyway, so you get, a, you get a sense of what that first version of the band sounded like. And in all honesty, you know, when I hear it, I have to agree with, with um, I think it was Chris Briggs who later signed the band to Phonogram who said that, you know, he saw that version of the band and said they needed to, to get rid of their rhythm section. They needed a new drummer, a new bassist. And um, I have to agree with that. I mean... Now, we, you got to give the band a little slack here. I mean, this was their very first performance. They hadn't been together very long. Um, you know, so they there obviously were going to be issues here where they were not tight yet as a unit. And there's no doubt that they would have performed or improved dramatically if they would have continued and, you know, toured like crazy. In fact, I think Ian Grant somewhere, the manager of Big Country, said that, you know, to Stewart, you, know, you can either tour this band for a year around the clubs until you get tight as a unit, or we can go another direction now and, and you know, be a good band now. And that's when they got Tony and, and Mark to join. But I think you can really hear it in this uh, in this performance. And if you listen to the whole thing especially, but, you know, the drums are kind of all over the place. Uh, I've never really liked keyboards in big country's music. You know, I don't want to say as a rule because there are places where I think it works, but... Um, as a whole, I never really liked it, and I especially didn't like and don't like the more 80s dated sounding keyboards that I think kind of come into play here a little bit. And, you know, it's interesting. It's definitely interesting, but I believe Stuart once said um, in talking about that version of the band that just too much was happening on stage, that there was just too much going on. You know, everybody was playing their own parts, but it wasn't really meshing well together. And I think you can hear that in this performance. That doesn't mean it's not good and that it's not exciting and interesting, you know. But um, I think it just needed something else. And that something else was Mark and Tony. And one of the things about this first version of Big Country that I think was was going in the wrong direction is that I think that the guys they had in the band were more... Um, and when I say the guys in the band, I'm talking about the drummer, the keyboardist, and the bassist the Wisher brothers, and Clive Parker. But I think they were all from more of a punk background, um, if anything. You know, some of them, I don't even know how much experience they had, but I think they kind of had come from bands that were, you know, peers of the Skids or, or you know, maybe even a level below the Skids. And they were from a more punk background, both the way they approached music and from a musicianship, music, musicianship perspective. Um, now, that's not a slight against them, that's not a I'm not trying to insult those players. I'm just saying that you know they were more raw, they were less technically precise. They were less uh schooled as musicians. And that could work beautifully in another type of band. I mean, I think that worked great in the Skids. There was something about the Skids and all those guys and the chemistry they had that that worked well. And I don't think anyone in that band was a great musician. Certainly they went through a number of drummers and a few bass players and None of them were great players, but they, they meshed together, then, and it worked. Stewart was, of course, a great player, um, but it worked. I just don't think it worked for that first version of Big Country, and I think they needed something else. I think Stewart needed something else to take his music to the next level and to the, le- the level that he wanted it to go. And again, that's not I'm not trying to insult those guys. I just think they were in the wrong band. I mean, like, for example, you take the Sex Pistols. Paul Cook, the drummer. You could put Mark Brzecki back there playing for the Sex Pistols. Mark Brzecki would bury Paul Cook from a technical perspective, obviously. But the band would probably stink. Mark Brzecki was not, would not be right for the Sex Pistols. You need someone like Paul Cook and his caveman-like drumming, who I think is a great drummer for what he does. Um, and he, he contributed to the sound of the Sex Pistols. And without him, you wouldn't have that sound. Mark Brzecki is a much better drummer, but he wouldn't have worked in that band. But yet sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes you need some better musicians to come in to make what the band is trying to be actually happen and work. And I think that's what Big Country needed. And I think that's because the music that Stewart was creating and the music that Stewart and Bruce were both creating, 
was was uh, such a such a new and unique type of thing that uh, it needed that extra push. I don't think Stewart wanted to make another version of the skids, and I think that's what that first version of Big Country was in danger of becoming. You know, just another version of the skids, but with Stewart singing this time and another guitar player. But it was the same type of feeling as the skids. Um, I don't think that's what he wanted. I don't think that's what he wanted that band to be. And I think he realized that pretty quickly. Now, the band, you know, took the advice of Chris Briggs, and I, I guess, you know, Stewart obviously agreed with it, and I, I'm assuming Bruce did as well. And they fired Clive Parker, and originally they wanted to keep uh, Peter Wishart as the keyboard player and just get rid of Alan Wishart. But Peter, being the good brother that he, that he was, um, said, no, you know, if you're going to fire my brother... Uh, you're going to have to fire me too. I'm not. I'm not going to leave, and or I'm not going to stay here. And and my brother's going to leave. You know, it's either both of us or none of us. So the Wisher brothers were gone. To me, that was a blessing in disguise because again, I'm not a fan of the keyboards. I didn't like those keyboards. I mean, there's something endearing about them from kind of a you know an '80s type of perspective, but I think it dated the music. And I think just going back to the to the standard guitar, bass, and drums lineup, which is timeless, helped keep their music timeless. So Bruce and Stuart were without a band, and they got together with, not for long, they got together with Mark and Tony, who they had known before. Um, Mark and Tony had toured with the Skids, I believe, in a band called On the Air. And they had both watched the Skids and been uh, very... Um, impressed with Stewart, and I know Tony loved Stewart and the Skids and what they did. And through Ian Grant, they got together and um, they said, you know, let's see what happens between the four of us. So what a combination, I think. The perfect combination to make Big Country happen. The Big Country that we know and love. And that's what I was talking about when I was saying that you needed that extra something to make that music come to life. Because the music was so... I mean, it was so advanced in a sense. I mean, uh, it was rock and roll, but there was there was something more advanced about it to me. I mean, when I listened to it, um, and the musicianship of Mark and Tony came from a much more schooled uh, place than the other guys. I mean, these guys were session musicians who played with Pete Townsend and other great players, the Pretenders. You know, bands that really demanded great musicianship especially Pete Townsend. So, you know, these guys were schooled, and they could probably play just about any style of music. But for some reason, when they got together with Stuart and Bruce, who, who again, are excellent musicians, but were, were more from the, the punk background and were a little more raw and, I think, rough around the edges, when those two elements got together, it was perfect for big country. It was exactly what that music needed. And I think Stuart was probably so excited that he was finally hearing the sound that he had in his head, he was hearing that finally being brought to life by these guys. Because let's face it, now you had a situation where, as I said earlier, every guy in that band was important to the sound of the band. I mean, the way Stewart and Bruce played together to create that trademark guitar sound had to be those two. The way Tony played his bass, I wrote, I wrote a review once, um, I wrote a review once of a Big Country album when I was in college, and I said that Tony's bass lines moved with the grace of wild deer, <laughs> and I still feel that way. I mean, his bass playing is just phenomenal, and, and it was perfect for the band, such melodic bass parts, and you know, they, they're almost like guitar parts at times, and just a powerful bass that cuts through everything and has has a great weight to it and really adds to the music. And then you've got Mark's drumming. I mean, just an incredible drummer from a technical standpoint, but also an incredible drummer from a feel and a heart standpoint. I mean, a lot of times with technically great musicians, they'll 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 be able to play anything, but that heart won't be there. That that feeling of passion won't be there. But that's not what I get from Mark Brzezecki. I mean, there was something about that militaristic drumming, the rolling toms that he brought into the into the band. I mean, it could not have been a more perfect fit for the guitar sounds and the bass sounds. And then you got Stewart's voice, and I mean, you've got perfection, in my opinion. And it's really rare that 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 type of thing happens. I mean, when you think about 
you know, two guys, Stuart and Bruce, getting together with two relative strangers. I mean, I know they knew each other to some degree, but I don't think they were friends or even more than casual acquaintances. And um, in my experience as a musician over the years, trying to find people to play together with, I mean, it's so rare to find anybody that, you know, you want to play with or that connects with you. And it's, you know, especially the older you get and and as things move on. But, you know, so for that to happen where that, that certain chemistry just exploded together with the four of them, it was almost like it was fate, like it was meant to be. And in a way, I, I like to think that it was. And I guess they all four felt it, and they all four sensed it, because they all four decided that this was the band they wanted to be a part of. I think Tony had to talk Mark into it, from what I've read in the past. Mark liked it, but he wasn't sure he wanted to give up the session stuff. Um, and he didn't. I mean, he did that over the years, but he wasn't, he wasn't sure he wanted to totally commit to the band. But luckily for us, Tony convinced him they did do it, and uh, the rest is history. So that brings us to the debut of the band, The Crossing. And I know some things happened in between the formation of the band and the recording of that album. They worked with a producer named Chris Thomas, and uh, he was originally going to produce their album. It didn't work. They weren't really happy with with what was happening with him. Uh, They did release the Harvest Home single, which again has those, those keyboards on it. But but if you compare the two I mean, versions, I mean, the Harvest Home version that Chris Thomas did with the Harvest Home of The Crossing, I mean, there's it's no contest, which is better. So The Crossing. The Crossing comes out in America on July 15th, 1983. It was released on Mercury. Uh, Phonogram, Universal was reissued on U- Universal later. But it reached number 18 on the Billboard charts here in America. It would hit number 4 on the Canadian Albums chart. It hit number 11 on the Dutch chart, 8 in New Zealand, 17 in Sweden, 3 on the UK chart, so almost number 1. And it would hit uh, number 18, as I said, on the US Billboard charts. So it's a huge album. It's been uh, certified gold here in America. That's That means 500,000 sold, um, and that happened in 1984. Maybe it's platinum by now. I'm not sure. Um yeah, someone associated with the band would have to answer that, but uh, I know it was gold in, in 1984. It's platinum in the UK. Um, I'm not sure how many units that that means in the UK. I think it's different than America. I know in America, platinum is a million units sold. That might be different in the UK since the uh, sizes of the two countries are, are different. But uh, in any respect, a big album, a huge album. Got the got the band a Grammy nomination. They certainly should have won the Grammy that year. They lost to the the cursed Culture Club. <laughs> you know, hey, Cindy, I, I really love your new record. You know, girls just want to have fun. <laughs> Thanks, Rodney. And I'll tell you, Cindy, you know, I, boys want to have fun too. You know what I mean? <laughs> Chevy Chase, too, okay? Met him. For this new artist, the nominees are... Big Country. Culture Club. Men Without Hats. Musical youth. The best new artist is Culture Club. First of all, thank you very much to Tony and Abby Gordon. 
and Gene at Wedge Music. Thank you all very much. And also to Epic Records in America, Susan Bland and everybody there. And also there. to Virgin Records in London, Ronnie Gurr and <laughs> <Who>? Simon. <laughs> and to the band. <laughs> Thank you, America. You've got, you've got taste, style, and you know a good drag queen when you see one. <laughs> So we're going a little long here on this first uh, segment, so I'm going to devote the entire next segment to dissecting the crossing track by track. So before we do that, I want to play one more thing here, and this is an interview with Steve Lillywhite that I think you'll find really, really interesting if you haven't heard it before. It was something he did uh, not too long ago, I think maybe three or four years ago, and he apparently is a regular on this radio station where he talks about different... um, different bands that he's produced over the years and different albums that he's produced over the years. And at one point he talked about The Crossing. And since that's what we're going to be talking about, what better way uh, to kick that off than to hear the man who produced this album discuss in, in some really interesting detail his experience producing The Crossing. So this is Steve Lillywhite talking about the, the recording of The Crossing And that's going to wrap it up for segment one. And please download segment two, and we will continue the conversation from there. Here's Steve Lillywhite. Whenever we have a Lillywhite session on the World Cafe, we ask longtime producer Steve Lillywhite to hang out with us to talk about one of the many albums he's produced since the days of the British New Wave when he was getting started. Today he talks about the Scottish band Big Country. Here in the U.S., that band was all about the song in a big country, although they were much bigger in Europe and much more respected. Steve says that it was all about MTV's play of their video for that song. In the UK, they were very much considered much more of a serious band. I think the problem in America was that um, they had a video for this song in a big country that was, I seem to remember them all sort of looking a bit like the monkeys and running around on on those uh, all-terrain vehicles. And it was all a bit silly. Um, but in the UK, it was, it was at the same time as sort of um, Simple Minds and U2 were coming through. And they were definitely at the cutting edge of rock music. And, and personally, this was a very a big favorite album of mine because you know i i did one song with them to start with to see how it would go well i'll I'll set the story up even more they they had been in the studio with a very well-known famous producer and and it hadn't really gone so well so all of a sudden the a and r guy called me up and said steve it you know can you get involved with this band i said sure we'll we'll go and do a song so so we went in and did one song and um it was a song called fields of fire which i'd like to play this one song Fields of Fire and, and all of a sudden the, the, the lead singer the lead guy of the band Stuart Adamson who is not with us we can talk about that later he said Steve I've got it this is our sound I know what I can do now and he went away and, and, and he hadn't written in a big country uh, and I feel like you know when I'm at my best as a producer it's it's not just to make a record but it's to inspire people as I say in, in the UK it did start a career over here it, it didn't really didn't really give them a career. It was a one-hit wonder. It was a bit of a novelty record. I'm not expecting to grow flowers in the desert, but I can live and breathe and see the sun in winter time. In a big country, dreams stay with you like a lover's voice from the mountainside. There's the, there's the sound of the 80s for you. Yeah. <laughs> Big country. I was the 80s. Baby. I was the 80s. <laughs> Steve Lillywhite is with us once again, and we're discussing more of the albums he's produced. And, and uh, this Big Country album, The Crossing, which, as uh, Steve indicates, was uh, the beginning of a career for this band in, in the UK and Europe, and, and very different than, than how we, we see the band here. But it's great to listen to these. Uh, what a, a sound. How, how do you. Um, there's a majestic sound to this band. Right. And, and it, 
does that uh, come with the recording or come with what you end up doing with the recording afterwards? Well, no, it was the recording. I, I had this idea of how I wanted to record them. They were great musicians. And, and, and you know, when you have great musicians, it, it enables you to, to open up yourself to, to new ideas because you know that they can go with them. And, for instance, with the drums, I, I decided I would get the drummer to record each drum separately. Wow. Now, that seems like a, you know, I'm... Uh, it was a, a lot of painstaking work, but I, I would love to say to him, okay, take your drum part, now play it without the tom-toms. And, and if, the, if the pattern was tom-tom based, you know, it, it, I could see his brain going, getting weird, and, and then he would, he would learn this new drum part. And, you know, just all that. I, I love challenging musicians if they're good musicians. Sometimes if you challenge a musician, you have to know when to challenge them because, you know, everyone likes to succeed in a challenge. And if I challenge someone to do something and they failed, it would actually take us back in the recording process. So I have to be very careful how I approach working with different people and, and, and what I what I can expect from them. Now, when you take things apart like that and then end up putting it back together, is there a eureka moment in the studio where you show the band what you what is Yeah, there can be and it, and it's great, you know, and I sometimes like doing that on my own and then say, "Look, guys, please, I you know, and and I and I dress it up in a way that I have to say I say something like, you know, it's best that someone has a bit of a distance. Let me do my thing, and then you come back in an hour, two hours, and and uh, hopefully I can impress you. It's all about I'm I'm trying to make sure that you know, I think I think I'm one of those sort of producers who wants to impress the artist. A lot of producers say to an artist, impress me, but I'm I feel like if they like their record they will it, it, it's a good sign you know it, it's a subtle difference but 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 I, as I say I, I like to say to them I, I want to impress you with what I can do for your music rather than you impress me with what you can do and you're talking about a level of trust too which is oh yeah, well uh, yeah I mean I I hate people who say Steve I'll do anything you want me to because you know I feel like if they have the ideas I'm a great facilitator of of their ideas and and to be honest anyone who trusts me without having work with me is is a fool you know you have to earn the trust of anyone and that's you know I don't want someone to have blind faith just because I produce someone else's record I want them you know to come in and go okay let's you know I want you know and, and I have to I've, sometimes on these interviews I can sound a bit sort of flippant and stuff, but and, and I'm like that in the studio, but I like to put people at ease when they work because I feel the best way of getting something out of someone is, is collaboratively. I, I, you know, as I say, I, I, that, that's how I work. Uh, Stephen Lillyway, pick, pick another one from uh, The Crossroads. Okay, well, just let me say, it's, it's a bit sad the way the band ended, really, because the, the, the leader of, of the band, um, Stuart Adamson, who actually before Big Country was in a band called The Skids. Now, most people would not have heard of this band, except that last year Green Day and U2 did a cover version of a Skids song called The Saints Are Coming. Um, but anyway, he, he was a great guy uh, and seemed to be perfectly normal, um, and I'm afraid to say one day he was found having committed suicide in a hotel room in Hawaii. And uh, I don't know how he got to that place, but uh, the band still sort of do the odd gig in Scotland without him. But, you know, he was the, he was the main reason for Big Country. And, and it's, it's a pity anyone gets to the point where they, they want to take their life. I mean, I, I would think that there's normally a way out for everyone if they, if they reach out to people but he decided there wasn't a way out and it was a bit sad um and actually that that leads us into this last track it's called chance and it and it's actually when you think about how the guy who wrote this song committed suicide it's a little bit more poignant when you hear it but you know i don't want to end up in a sad note it's a great song and and you can look at it both ways you can look at it as a as an uplifting song as well
That is Chance from The Crossing, Big Country, the album from 1983, produced by Steve Lillywhite. Steve, thank you again. Thank you for having me, David. For, uh, for turning us on to this music. We'll be back in a moment here on the World Cafe.